0: This is The Crucible, the JRTC experience. What do we got? Countdown 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, launch, launch, launch. KV down, right? And then modify the lookout. We expect to be Observing, I observe two
1: counts. V in on that.
0: This is Outthinking the Enemy. In this series, we discuss intel warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC.
1: Hello. Thanks for joining us for the best practices of the intelligence warfighting function at the Joint Readiness Training Center. This is our virtual JRTC, what the COG called, Bringing the Crucible to Your Couch. I'm Colonel John Ives, the Senior Intelligence Officer, Senior Intelligence Observer, Coach, and Trainer. Uh, like I said, we'll be talking about the best practices in the Intelligence Warfighting Function. I have eight of them that we normally brief in a one-page Even if I emailed you this briefing, it would still just be this one page. Notice how the first bullet has a lot of good information in it. We'll be spending a lot of time on that one. Where We will be talking about each of these bullets in turn. The first one's quite a doozy, which is a good S2, understands the four core competencies, can do the intelligence process, understands it and executes it, and then does good IPB. So let's ask this question. Why am I harping on the four core competencies, specifically intelligence synchronization, intelligence operations, intelligence PED, and intelligence analysis? These things are important because if you don't understand the core competencies, if you haven't actually read ADP 2-0, which by the way is only about 80 pages long, especially if you include the uh, table of contents and the pictures that are prevalent throughout the entire uh, manual, take a look at it. Download it off of Google and take a look at it. This is important to understanding not only what it is you do as an S2, but what you do as an intelligence professional. Uh, The first core competency is intelligence synchronization. Intelligence synchronization is a lot more than just synchronizing collection. A lot of units come in here and try to synchronize just the collection piece, or they try to synchronize just a couple of meetings that happen at 0, 0500 in the morning to do some sort of an intel update with each other. But that's only part of it. Obviously, synchronizing collection is important. Obviously, synchronizing the team, bringing everybody together to do that morning report or afternoon laydown of what the enemy doing and what everybody thinks it is, By the way, that's creating a common intelligence picture, so please do that as well. But this is also about synchronizing when does the S2 get that last bit of real information to support the commander's decision point. This is about synchronizing when the battalion S2 for a logistics battalion is going to get that last bit of crucial information on the route to the fuelers before they reach that last turnaround point. This is about understanding where data at rest and where data at motion is going to be reaching everybody. That would be knowledge management and the intelligence architecture. It's about knowing the pace plan. And again, it's about when are we all gonna get together and talk about this? So when does the BCT actually share all of the IPB products to include battle damage assessment products, the BDA chart? And when does the Battalion S2 ever provide some sort of bottom-up refinement to that one? That's all intelligence synchronization. This is the art of integration. This is the art of making intel useful in time and space. This brings us to intelligence operations. Some would say that that's a fancy word for information collection, which it is, but collection is one of the tougher things that people will try to accomplish here at JRTC. So let's cover that in a completely different topic. I'll just say this, the information collection plan or the ICSM is some sort of a litmus test for the success or the struggles of the intelligence warfighting function because it requires the understanding of PED, because it requires the understanding of all of the assets, because it requires not just an in-depth knowledge of the enemy situation and the enemy actions based on IPB, but also what is the friendly situation and how are we gonna be able to support that with all of our collection. Third is good old fashioned PED. Let me tell you, it breaks my heart to hear somebody say something about PED only being for echelons above brigade, or PED only supports flying objects. Uh, that is absolutely ridiculous, because I would argue that you must consider PED even when you're talking about that 19-year-old scout who's sitting in the rain in the middle of a sumac bush. Now it's probably a good point to also point out that uh, JRTC is a pit of despair when it comes to all these different plant-based things. Uh, poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac are all prevalent here at JRTC. At one point or another, we'll find you trying to camouflage something and or sleeping right in the middle of it. So here's a quick shout out to terrain analysis and understanding your area of operations. That's too, that's kind of your job also. But anyway, let's get back to that 19 Delta who's sitting in the rain. What's your ped plan for that information? How is that soldier reporting that information up through the battalion? Does it go all the way to the BCT? At what point do you decide that that information is of value for answering a PIR? Or does it just confirm or deny an enemy course of action? Even negative reporting is important if it comes back and says the enemy's not in an NAI that you expected to see the enemy. What about the shadow? What about the human pit? And do you understand the timeline for getting all that information through the system? Or is that really just intelligence synchronization? Or is it the responsibility of intelligence operation? Wait, you mean to tell me that so far we have three of the four core competencies and they probably are all linked in some sort of nifty, cool Venn diagram? Hey, look at that. And that brings us to our fourth core competency and that of analysis. Some would tell you that analysis is the bread and butter of intelligence, but I'll tell you that analysis is probably just the byproduct of us doing our job the right way at the right time. But I'll also warn you that analysis at JRTC is sometimes pretty bad. And that's usually based on the fact that they haven't completed IPB, or they haven't even tried to do all of IPB, missing event temps, not even getting to the event matrix. But that's another topic for another time. Now, when it comes to analysis, do I care if you thought four tanks were going to be coming down the road and only two of them actually showed up? Absolutely not. The fact that you identified that there was tanks, the fact that you said they'd be coming down the road at a certain time towards your friendly positions is good enough. You warned the unit, you got them prepared to destroy tanks. They just didn't get to destroy four, they got to destroy two. So good job, S-2. But what a disaster it is if the BCTS-2 thought that and didn't provide that analysis to the battalion. Or what if the battalion looked at that analysis and didn't think it was right and didn't provide bottom-up refinement back up to the BCTS-2? Again, that Venn diagram of how all of these are linked. And how heartbreaking is it to find out that You didn't actually critically think your way through it or didn't do the analysis on the terrain, terrain analysis, that IPV thing again. And then you had the enemy going down the wrong road or you had them going down a road that had no crossing point. So where's the terrain analysis in that one? It's also terrible to see an S2 who gets so locked into a course of action that they don't have any ability to recognize that this is a separate course of action or just a variant of the one they're actually following simply because a couple of extra vehicles a couple fewer vehicles or they showed up two hours early There are four core competencies synchronization operations ped and analysis and if you follow these if you internalize these if you truly think your way through them you can't lose a JRTC Again, these are the best practices for the intelligence warfighting function and how an S2 can truly make a command team successful at JRTC. Yes, you can win. That first bullet on that sheet of the eight is led by an S2 with a clear understanding of the four core competencies and the intelligence process. We'd like to cover the intelligence process, but... I'd like to take a step back and talk about understanding. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about rote memorization. That does nobody any good whatsoever if you can recite all of ADP 2-0. What I mean is for you to know that there is core competencies, to know that there is an intelligence process. That's the first piece of understanding is to know it, to be able to recognize that it exists. That means you do have to go to Chapter 3 of ADP 2-0, which is only seven pages long, so please take advantage of this opportunity to download that and read it. The next piece is you should be able to take what you know, what you've read, and be able to um, explain it, be able to talk it out, be able to, uh, if you were to try to sell it to somebody else, be able to do that. And then the third part is to be able to apply it. And that's really what I want to talk about here, because when you come to JRTC, it's not too late for you to read the ADP on your way to JRTC, but it would be a great opportunity for you to practice it before you come. Uh, and then actually put it into action while you're here. So let's go ahead and move on to that first one. Okay, so the intelligence process. First off, let's take a look at it. Yeah, there it is. The first piece of that one is to plan and direct. Now. A lot of people think plan and direct, the first thing you're doing is driving right into that collection plan and you should see some of the things that come out of a collection plan that's done by a collection manager who's located someplace different from the S2 or the all source team that's doing all the IPB products. What you end up with is a collection plan that doesn't match where you think the enemy is going to be. And it definitely doesn't match what the friendly plan is because they created a collection plan before there was ever even a concept of operations. So yeah. Don't think plan and Direct means go right after the ICSM. If you look on this chart, which I'll show you again, this is my Vanna White impersonation, by the way, what you get is IPB. First part of this whole thing is IPB. Really what it is, is what do I know and what do I need to know? And then you go in and do your information collection, which is, hey, somebody go find me this. I don't understand what they mean by tank battalion. I don't know what they mean by exploitation force. Somebody try and pull all this together for me so we can start looking at it. And then you go through the steps of IPB. But IPB then leads into a collection plan. And that's where you start talking about actually directing assets, some some sort of a plan, that plan and direct. So when you start talking about directing assets, who directs assets? Is it the S2 or is it the S3? A lot of S2s try to direct assets using the Annex B. And I hate to burst your bubble. Has anybody actually read an entire Annex V, especially in the middle of a rotation, in the middle of a constrained timeline when you haven't slept in probably two or three days and it's raining and you're upset and you definitely don't like your OCs? Yeah, nobody's reading the Annex V, especially the people that are receiving the assets that are supposed to be collecting in their area. So don't do that. What ends up happening is your SIGINT team shows up and then they don't get fuel your human team shows up and they don't get any security. So what you have to do is make sure that the S3 is the one that's directing, meaning here's the operations order, here it is in the attached to subordinate units, and then off they go to go do what it is they need to do, because then the battalions receive those assets accurately. And then the same thing down at the battalion level, if you have a capability that has been brought to the battalion and you wanted to go down to Alpha Company or out with the scouts Make sure that it's tasked properly. That's part of plan and direct and something that an Intel person, an S2, really has to think about before they do something ridiculous like try to hide all those requirements inside the Annex B, which nobody's reading. I'm sorry to tell you this, nobody reads it. So that brings us to the next piece, which is the plan and directive, more than just the collection plan. Because we've talked about, hey, you want a plan? I want FMV here. And we start talking about the collection plan, and you get all excited about it because it's the exciting part of Intel. But let's talk about the plan and directive of the Intel architecture, which also happens during this phase. Now, at some point or another, you're going to want to be able to talk to all of your Intel people. So this is where you plan your pace. What is the primary, the alternate, et cetera, et cetera, of your pace plan of how you're going to communicate from BCT to battalion or battalions down to the companies from that scout, not that 19 Delta that's living in the, in the rain in a sumac bush. And where's the plan and direct for how you're gonna bring that information back and how it fits into everything. Uh, but then it's also, if you're at the BCT level, uh, what's the plan for that uh, data at rest and data in motion Uh, like we talked about last time, is do you have a knowledge management plan of where you're going to post all these IPB products? Because I guarantee you, you're going to struggle with getting the bandwidth of getting all that information out to your teams uh, down to the battalions. And then, of course, battalions, not a whole lot of bandwidth of taking those cool products you're putting together and getting them to the company. So what's your plan of how you're going to share what it is you have with people and then get some sort of feedback back? So this is the part where uh, a, a good BCTS2 or Battalion 2 says, okay, I'm putting together this great you know, IPB, I've got a great sit temp or whatever, and you send it out uh, and then you get nothing back because part of your plan didn't include, I want feedback within three hours or I want feedback before you complete your portion of the sit temp. So you come back to me and say, hey, I'm not buying it, boss. Let's talk about this a little bit more. And that's something you need. Part of your plan and direct means also when you plan for the shadow to go out and do collection, you've got it going, you know, deep or, or you've got a gray eagle doing part of it and shadow doing another part. And then you've got scouts doing another part of, of, the, of the NAIs in depth, if you will. Um, but then your shadow platoon leader goes and sits with the BAE um, or the BAO and, and comes back and says, I can't hit any of those NAIs. When was the time in all that planning and directing where that shadow platoon leader comes back and says, I can't go that deep. Somebody's gonna shoot me out of the sky. And here's a hint, somebody's gonna shoot you out of the sky. So think your way through this one of how you want people to provide feedback as well, because that's part of the plan and direct phase also. Okay, now let's move to the collect and process portion of this one. Now this is where you talk about uh, the execution of collection, uh, but then also the initial processing of information and in some ways it's really like the uh, the single source processing of information. So when you look at the collect and process phase, this would be, the, you know, the shadow going out uh, and doing that FMV collect. And then you've got somebody watching the OSRVT or, or whatever you're using to, to look at the video. And then your analyst is, is taking that initial look and providing some sort of information. That's the collect and process phase. Uh, this is an important portion of it and people get very excited and they want to skip right to it but if you don't do that plan and direct because i'm going to harp on now and if you don't do the plan and direct you can't really do the collect and process piece Uh, but this is a good time to throw up this chart once again okay so take a look at this for a second and notice that there's these other circles inside there that talk about the analyze and assess piece now this is the part where people say i've collected i've processed so therefore i'm analyzing and i'm assessing And they really talk about the analyzing and the assessing of the information. Yes, absolutely important. But like I said, some people say it's the bread and butter of intelligence is doing that analysis. But if you're doing everything the right way, the analysis is just snapping and popping. It's happening. So take a look at this piece as not just analyzing that. Yes, I've seen a tank in the NAI. And so I assess it to be this. uh, And now I'm analyzing the situation and I'm saying this. That's just analyzing and assessing the information, but let's analyze and assess the value of that collection asset at this point. If you've seen that there's something in that NAI and it's confirmed or denied, do you need to continue to follow that tank for the next eight hours of your gray eagle time? Probably not, but you'd be amazed how many units show up here and think about in that they've collected, they've processed, meaning they've analyzed and they've assessed as a part of this big circle. Here it is again as part of this big circle, analyze and assess, and they don't ever really take a look at the assets themselves to say, is it time to move the SIGINT team? Should my human team be on the front lines of my defense at this point, or should I go ahead and move them someplace else? Where's the assess and the analyze of that, especially coming right out of that collect and process phase? So take a look at that one and think about it for a minute. Okay, this brings us to the produce phase. Uh, so, if you take a look again at our cycle in uh, the produce, we're talking about the producing the production of all source materials. We're talking about taking all of that individual SIGINT, human, uh, the all source, or I'm sorry the uh, the FMV and bringing it in and the all source team really sitting down, putting the brain together to create a product, something they can kick out. Uh, but it can be a lot faster than that, also. keep in mind that if you already have, I'm sorry, I know I'm gonna I said I wasn't gonna touch IPB, but let's go back a moment and talk about in the IPB process, if you have a good event matrix, then you understand when things are gonna happen and what they mean. Meaning if you do find a tank in this NAI, it means that the exploitation force is going here. So if you take a look at that, do you, the production phase kind of becomes uh, the current ops captain suddenly jumping up and yelling, attention in the talk, I got course of action too, or whatever it might be. So don't get wrapped around the whole concept of, this is the part where the all-source analyst creates a PowerPoint briefing and kicks out a 10 megabyte product over a system that only pushes at, you know, 1.8 megabits per second. So take, take that in mind that production is not always just producing a product. It can just be somebody saying, we've collected... We've processed it, meaning I've thought about it. I've done the analysis and the assessing as a part of this whole circular process. And now I'm producing something that is of value because sometimes that of value is literally somebody just yelling, I got tense. But this is what they mean is that next part. And that's the the production piece. Now that brings us into dissemination. So if you look at the chart yet again, uh, we have dissemination. Uh, Dissemination, I know I harped on this one last time talking about the, core competency of PED, and the D of PED is dissemination, processing, exploitation, and dissemination. So in that dissemination piece of your core competency, and then here you have it inside your intelligence process as well, and I guarantee you when you start talking about your collection process, you're going to have PED again with dissemination. So dissemination, let's go back and talk about where I said the Uh, The current ops captain suddenly jumps up and says, I got tanks in NAI 101, which means course of action two. Well, he just disseminated the information into the talk. So you don't have to overthink dissemination. But I also caution you against underthinking dissemination. All too often, the underthinking of dissemination happens because of the plan and direct piece of this big circle, Okay, the plan and direct piece of it all. Uh, They're not thinking about how's the data going to get from the BCT to the battalion? Or how is the battalion S2 really gonna get that information to the scouts who need to know something at that last moment? Or how's those scouts gonna get that information back in here? So thinking about dissemination is multi-layered. It's multi-int, and it's four-dimensional because it's not just how things are moving left, right, and up and down, but it's also how are things happening across time because your dissemination piece changes. So when I talk about a four-dimensional multi-int ped or multi-int plan, that's what I'm talking about when I say four-dimensional is that piece of time that what you talk about in phase one of the operation, you have to change how you talk about it via which methods and to whom it needs to go to uh, differently in a different phase. And so that's that's the fourth dimension when I talk about that one. Okay, so now we've talked about all the different parts of the intelligence process. Now let's look at this chart one more time because I like to do my Vanna White thing. Hey, look at the neat trick I learned on iMovie. Uh, if you look at this one, you've got the, the, the uh, intelligence process on the outer circle. And then inside of that one, you've got that analyze and assess, which is part of the intelligence process. But then you also have internal to that one, those four core competencies. So you don't have to put up with one of my Venn diagrams. Uh, you have a diagram that the Army already put together for you. And it's in that chapter three of ADP 2-0. And I highly recommend you go and take a look at that one yet again intelligence preparation of the battlefield. And uh, that you can find in ATP 2-01.3. Four steps of IPB. First step, define the operational environment. Second step, uh, discuss the environmental effects on operations. The third step is evaluate the threat. And the fourth step is determine threat courses of action. Now, like I said last time, Memorizing ATP 2-01.3 doesn't do you as much good as understanding ATP 2-01.3 or really the four steps of IPB. So let's not worry too much about whether or not I misspoke those. Uh, They should be located right here while we're talking. What you should see here is straight out of the ATP 2-01.3, which are the example products associated with each step of IPB. The first part I wanna discuss are all the example products associated with each step. So you have the four steps outlined in this picture, but also all the different products that are kind of expected or anticipated that you'll produce. However, at JRTC, we expect you to provide products that are very much based on what best supports your commander's decision points, what best supports your staff as a complete MDMP, and what best supports your subordinate commanders. So if it doesn't look exactly like it looks in the manual, that's fine. But what we are concerned with is when you skip one of the steps of IPB, don't produce something that's supposed to provide what the event temp provides or doesn't provide what the sit temp provides, and you skip those steps altogether, in which case you end up not supporting your commander or any of those decision points. And here also you have an example inside of ATP 2-01.3 where it explains the inputs and the outputs of IPB or, or really part of the MDMP process and how the outputs of IPB become the inputs of course of action development and course of action comparison. So really, if you're not producing, you're not supporting the entire process. So let's talk about that first point of defining the operational environment. We don't see a whole lot of issues here at JRTC where people come in and they start outlining Alexandria or they're talking about NTC when they're actually at JRTC. We don't have really a big issue with that one of defining the operational environment as far as area of operations, area of interest, giving the general outline of the terrain and the weather. Yes, it's rainy. Yes, it's swampy. Got it. Uh, So nobody really has a problem with those. So we're going to move right into step two. This is where we start to see a real issue with organizations that... Aren't really paying attention to the products they're putting out. So, what are some of the products that come out of this one? Obviously, the Maku, obviously, weather and light effects. Uh, those are just the three basic ones that come out of this portion of it. Uh, so, let's talk about those. First one, the Maku. The Maku has to support your operation, it has to support your type of organization. And, like I said, it has to be able to support your subordinate commanders. Staff MDMP and your commander's decision points or commander's decision process. So really, let me ask you this one. Do you do Maku before you show up at JRTC or do you do it right when you get there and you receive each mission? I say both. First off, you wanna do it ahead of time. Just go ahead and do it for the entire area. You get a general idea of what you have. Then when you get the actual mission, you can dive into that area and redo the Maku for that area. And the reason I say that is when you do all of JRTC, where you're looking at, I don't know, 20 or 30 kilometers left and right, and then uh, 15 to 20 kilometers north and south, and then you really don't dig into the details. But when you get the actual mission that's coming to you, you might look at it and go, I'm really only concerned with about a six or nine or 10 square kilometer area. Maybe I can just drill into that one and really focus on what it is I'm trying to provide. Plus, you have to imagine that, the Maku changes. Yes, the Maku changes based on what's happening inside your operational environment. So, For example, let me give you this one Strikers with an infantry battalion doing an operation. The Striker, or correction, the BCTS2 uh, creates a Maku, uh, hands it down to the Striker unit. The next day it rains. And it doesn't rain a little, it rains for two days straight. They don't adjust the Maku to talk about the changes in where the water went. Whether or not the roads are muddy, whether or not the strikers can even go down the road that they originally planned to do. So, what ended up happening is the BCT attacked with strikers down the one part of JRTC that you definitely cannot take heavy vehicles. The entire operation was suffered because nobody updated the Maku and updated that conversation. So, the Maku isn't just something you create before you get here, and it's not something that you create at the beginning of MDMP and then don't relook. The Maku is not, it, you redo it, you do it again, and then you pay attention to it all the way through. The next question we get a lot when it comes to the Maku is whether or not it should be digital or analog. Completely up to you and what it is you like. Personally, I want my geospatial engineer creating some sort of a Maku digitally so that we can look at that one. And then I want to hand it off to somebody who's really good at the MACU and have them do an analog version of one. Give it to one of the soldiers, give it to one of the NCOs, give it to one of your junior officers and have them run through the MACU, just really dig into it analog to see where's the difference. And once you've had that person do an analog version, make them your expert on the terrain. Ask them that question every time it starts to rain or it starts to dry up. And you say, wait a minute, if it starts to dry up, are we going to see more dust? Terrain. what do you think? And have your terrain person look at it again and go, oh, yeah, 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 I remember this. I had a geospatial engineer tell me, I don't update the Maku once we get to JRTC because, and he actually he said this, with all due respect, terrain doesn't change. And I argue that it does, absolutely does. But if you have a person who's done an analog, they know it. I mean, they got it right up here. They completely understand the impacts of terrain or the impacts of weather on terrain, but also just the different changes in the train as it goes as you move through the operations of JRTC. So take a look at that one. The next question we get on Maku is whether or not the MACU is one size fits all. No, it isn't. It absolutely is not. The BCT can do a MACU and get that general idea of what's the entire BCT going to be doing at JRTC, but then you bring in the strikers. Then you bring in the artillery. What about aviation? Think they need a little something different? How about your BSA? The logistics battalions all too often rely on the bct Maku, or they do one, but it's kind of at the same levels as BCT-MACU because they're overly rambunctious about having to do the routes across all of JRTC, which is correct, but it's really not that hard to do, and you could probably count on a geospatial engineer to help you out. So let's be more specific. A logistics S2, say the BSB-S2, could be taking a look at this whole thing and say... Where are the curves in the road where a fueler or a hemmet is going to have a hard time making that turn? Is there a low water crossing point that is too deep based on the the drop where a fueler could actually low bottom or or bottom out? Uh, Those are the types of questions that a logistics uh, S-2 could be asking. But also then when you get closer to the battle and saying, well, we've got tanks, which I'm not used to because I'm an infantry battalion S-2 who went to logistics or whatever else it is. I'm not used to this one. Let me ask the question of how much room does a fueler need to turn around? And when's the last turnaround point before they reach the tanks? Just in case the tanks are in contact, I can have them turn around and come back because they're going to get blown up. Or maybe the tanks can meet them at that last turnaround point. That's the type of terrain analysis that a logistics S2 can be doing to support the larger BCT mission. But you really have to think your way through that one. And let's talk about the BSA itself, if you're going to do a Maku for that matter. how What's the slope like? And when it rains, is the rain all going to flow down to where you're trying to store up all of your ammo? Or how about your sleeping area? And what about the natural lines of drift when it comes to the defense of your BSA? Because guess what? Geronimo's in the woods, and they're coming after you. It's going to happen every rotation. So just go ahead and figure that out now. If I'm going to set up my perimeter, where's the natural lines of drift? Because... Humans are humans, and they're going to take the easiest route to get to you, especially when they know BSAs don't do a great job of securing themselves. So here's your opportunity to actually drive that S2. Now let's talk about light and weather. All too often you see a chart that looks like this. If you're looking at this chart right now, what you're seeing is this is just the standard picture that units provide. If you really try to apply some sort of so what to this one, you can look down at the bottom and see the the different color schemes for what's gonna be affected. A lot of units don't adjust these things to meet exactly what their unit is concerned with when it comes to weather. For example, do the antennas need to be brought down? Do we need to move from the low ground to the high ground based on the rain that's coming? Do we need to be concerned about low water crossing points? A lot of these so what's don't really come up in conversation. Let's zoom in a little bit and look at this light data. The particular unit who shall not be named that provided this light data, look at that information about when the sun is rising and when the sun is setting. That doesn't make any sense. The EENT and BMNT, they seem to be flip-flopped. Even if you were to adjust those based on Zulu time uh, to JRTC time, you would find that they don't really match up with sunrise and sunset either. So I'm a little concerned as to what type of data. Now this particular unit, we went back to them and said, take a look at the data and try to come up with the effects in the hopes that in that coaching, they would actually recognize that this was some sort of an issue. It took them almost the entire rotation to find this problem. So I asked the question then, what kind of so what or what kind of value are you providing with your light weather data if you're not willing to really even take a look at it during IPB? For those of you who have worked with me before you know I'm much more interested in how to think and not what to think. So when we talk about these things and I say that the ATP 2-01.3 is important for you to review and read and to try and follow it I'm not so concerned yet again about the products themselves. So I really want you to pay attention to how to think about IPB. So like I said if you're not thinking about the weather and you're not thinking about the light and how it affects Are you really thinking about the enemy? And are you really thinking about the event matrix later on? So let's take this back a notch. Take a look at this light bar example. This is something I used to use as a Battalion S2 and have used multiple times in my career. If you start from left to right, what you're looking at is the sun sets and then you have early evening nautical twilight. Then you have a period of darkness before the moon rises. And then you have uh, before morning nautical twilight and then finally sunrise before you have daylight again. Uh, This is just a quick visual aid to tell somebody this is what you really have when it comes to light. But here's some key points that people mess up a lot. One, moonrise. First off, the percentage of a loom, which I have in here as being 44%, really only talks to the amount of the moon that's visible. That means that this is just under half moon. If you look at where the moon rises as well at two something in the morning, Uh, It sets sometime in the middle of the day, so it doesn't really do you a whole lot of good to talk about where the moon sets, instead talking about just the moonrise itself. But one thing people don't take into uh, account is where the moon rises. The moon changes from about 64 degrees to about 120 degrees on the horizon, and it adjusts daily throughout the month. If you look at where the moon is rising based on where you are in your operation, You can ask the question of, well, if it's rising at exactly 90 degrees and people facing exactly 90 degrees, maybe that's going to have some sort of an impact on my night vision devices. So where are some great things you can come up with on this one? First off, a light bar like this one can help you drive operations with just the effects of light data. As an example, what direction are we facing? If you happen to be facing the sunset or you happen to be facing the sunrise, are you going to be driving straight into it? And if so, is that going to affect your speed, your spacing? Are you going to have issues being able to see what's going on? So then you have to ask the question, if you're not facing the direction of the sunrise or the sunset, but rather moving the opposite direction, are you being highlighted as you come up over hills? Are your antennas being highlighted? Now here's something, maybe you should mention something about your antennas coming down just as the sun is setting behind them so the enemy doesn't have to just look above the tree line and suddenly see all of your antennas. These are simple things that you can work on and it provides those effects. So what about the moonrise? Like I said, if you're looking into the moon as it's rising, well, you're going to have some sort of an effect up to a certain point. So you kind of have to study the moon how long does it take the moon to get from edge of the horizon to about say 10 or 15 degrees off of horizon so it's no longer affecting soldiers with their night vision devices or drivers for that matter? And what about aviation? At some point or another where the moon rises and where it sets is going to have some sort of an issue for them, just like sunrise and sunset. In that period of darkness that you see on this chart, don't you think people are going to drive and or walk a little bit slower than they will when while the moon is up? Plus, think about what it takes to remove and replace the vision blocks on a vehicle. A tank vision block, for example, going from daylight sights to night vision devices, it takes a few moments. This would be a great opportunity to explain to your company commanders or to whoever's paying attention to you of this is a good place to stop on your route of march because just as you get to this point, we know the attack at dawn, for example, Maybe you want to change out your sights just a couple of minutes before before morning nautical twilight so that your driver already has their daytime sights in. Now you're talking about finding pieces of terrain where you can hide a vehicle to say, change out your sights here so that you're not just sitting on the road, exposed to everybody while you're changing out sights. So the same thing for moving from daylight to nighttime. These are issues that you can bring up. So hopefully that provided some sort of an example of how to think, not necessarily what to think, based on your mission, based on your requirements of what your unit has, what's special to them, that light, weather, or the terrain will impact. And when you combine those together, say moving uphill into the sunrise, that starts to change the the mathematics of how the unit's going to move, when they're going to move. And you can actually drive operations using something as simple as that to say, you can't be speeding into the sunset. It's not going to work for you. This is where you need to take a short halt. Have those types of conversations with your team. And don't forget the things like humidity, where the dew point is, because maybe you don't want your infantry down on the low ground, just as the the, uh, nighttime reaches dew point, everybody's going to wake up wet and miserable. Maybe you could talk to them about moving up the hill a little bit or covering all of their equipment with a poncho just at dew point so they can remove it right afterwards and then they still have dry equipment and dry dry clothes for that matter. These things will make a huge difference in the battle and that's where you come into play. So today we're going to be talking about evaluating the threat and determining threat courses of action. First off let's take a look at that whole chart right there of all the products that are expected or anticipated coming out of IPB. And if you'll look down at evaluate the threat, what we're really looking at is threat data and threat template. In order to evaluate the threat, the first thing we start with is some sort of a doctrinal baseline understanding of the enemy. And where do we find that? Well, I want you to find it in 7-100 series, which you can find on TRADOC's website, the odin.tradoc I'll put the link right here for you so that you can go to it later and take a look. There's a lot of great information on there that talks about not just the doctrine, but the tactics that the OP4 will use. Now, everybody who's been to JRTC is gonna say, oh, Geronimo doesn't follow doctrine. Actually, they do follow doctrine. The trick is we give them the doctrine, we tell them what tactics they have to use, but then after that, it's up to the initiative of the soldier of how they're going to perform within that doctrine and those tactics absolutely no differently than the way your soldiers do it. So keep that in mind when you say they didn't show up exactly 10 minutes after the first piece or 20 minutes after that, or they weren't spaced out the way the picture shows. Nobody's going to do that, so keep that in mind. The other way you get doctrinal understanding or the baseline of the enemy situation is through the Annex B, and you're going to get a read ahead before you come to JRTC. Now, like I've said to other people before, There's this old adage of, well, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Uh, Not so much at JRTC. If you've seen one JRTC rotation, you've seen one JRTC rotation. Other than the doctrine and the tactics, which I said are based on 7-100, which you can find on the Odin's website, then you also have the actual situation that you're walking into. So some of the issues we see with evaluating the threat is that People are using historical knowledge from the last time they were at JRTC. Now, that means that we see people come up with all kinds of great ideas, like old Soviet doctrine. I'm not lying. Somebody said there was a Ford security element, that the car was going to be exactly one-third the size of the rest of the unit attacking. For those of you who have gray hair like me, you know exactly where that came from. The new doctrine doesn't use those words. Please go to 7-100 and look at it. We have to have the same understanding of what we're talking about. Remember that your maneuver counterparts, the company commanders, the brigade commander, the battalion commander, the S3, they've all been taught the new doctrine. So if you're talking the old doctrinal terms, you're passing by each other, in which case you're really not doing evaluate the threat because you don't understand the the, the baseline doctrine or the tactics for that matter. What products are coming out of this portion of it? Well, you're going to get something that might look like this, you know, an order of battle chart, and you're going to get some sort of a threat template, uh, which is going to help you understand what the enemy is supposed to look like, what tactics you might see, which doctrine they're using based on the situation. But out of this is also going to come your high-value targets. This is the part where you look at it and say, based on their order of battle, based on their threat template, I expect to see these types of capabilities coming after us or these types of things that we want to eventually destroy because they are going to make the enemy successful. This is where you start handing that off and you start evaluating these things through the carver method or or whichever method your unit wants to use. And again, I would say when you go back into 2-01.3, it's going to say this is what an HVT list looks like and this is how it's spread out and this is what a carver matrix looks like. It has to fit the way your commander thinks. It has to fit the way your staff is doing MDMP and how your targeting process is working inside your battalion or inside your brigade. You have to be able to understand those and how you provide intelligence to support that. Now, if they're doing something crazy and off the wall and there is zero way intelligence can support it, then you as an influential leader inside of your battalion really have to dig in and start pushing that yourself. Another thing that comes out of the evaluate the threat step three of IPB is the beginnings of your BDA chart, because you've decided that this is what the template is going to look like. This is what the order of battle is going to look like. You can start putting a BDA chart off to the side and say, after I'm done with the sit temp of when I think they're going to attack, I can start building a pretty good BDA chart off of this one. This is where it all really starts to come out. So again, if you're not looking at the doctrine at the beginning, you can't quite get to the high value targets that you want to destroy as a part of your sensor to shooter plan, and you're definitely not gonna come up with a good BDA chart. And that brings us to our next piece. This is the exciting part in my mind because I really like this stuff and that's determining the threat courses of action. This is where you start coming up with the sit temps and the uh, the enemy course of action statements and maybe an enemy course of action sketch. I mean something really cool that you can show, that you can display. This is what I think the enemy is going to do in time and space. The sit temp is a lot of fun in my mind because you get to really take all of the warfighting functions that the enemy has. You get to put them on top of those terrain effects that you came up with in step 2. All the weather effects, all the light effects. Then you get to kind of look at all the doctrine that you looked at in step 3. The template that you have for what type of tactics are they going to use. And then put it on the battlefield and like I said, show it in such a way that it helps your commander understand. It helps your staff understand and gives them something to fight. Because remember if you go back and look at those, what are the outputs of IPB, right back into the inputs of IPB, uh, you find that this is one of those things that goes right into course of action um, um, development and then course of action approval, uh, course of action analysis, like all of that stuff that they're looking at the sit temp and the event temp and the event matrix. So this step of IPB is where it all really starts to come together. To me, that is fun because it's showing the enemy in time and space. When I say showing the enemy in time and space, what I mean is to show the enemy in the SITTEP in such a way that allows the staff to start developing a plan of what they want to do. So imagine your brigade or your battalion is in the defense. The enemy is attacking with, I don't, care, I don't care what size element it is that's attacking you. you want to show it in such a way that allows the staff to start developing defensive positions. Where do we want to kill the enemy? So you want to show the best location of where you can kill the enemy. That's terrain analysis. Then you want to be able to show how the enemy is going to be arrayed when they get into that space. Is that the part where they start spreading out and attacking? Is that the part where they engage their engineers forward to breach? Or are they all still stacked up and you're killing them in surprise? Probably not. They're gonna pretty much know exactly where your defenses are before you're done digging them. But this is a great opportunity to show where you think the enemy is and what you think they look like just as they make contact. One of the mistakes we see with the sit temp is that the S2 puts the enemy way far back or or deep in the battlefield and shows them all still stacked up in a line as they're on, on a road march and or has them already dispersed into some sort of attack formation like 10 kilometers out from where we're setting up the defense and that doesn't allow the company commanders to really understand what their defensive positions need to look like and where they need to be oriented, where the kill sack is going to be, or really where the NAIs become TAIs, so you can't really support the fires plan either. One of the other issues we see with the sit temp is the BCTS2 team puts together a sit temp that has a 2x2 kilometer size diamond. Uh, On the advance and has an arrow with, you know, the double headed arrow. This is the main effort. And it's this gigantic diamond coming at you that covers over like three different routes of march or or avenues of approach that it can be taken to come at you and then hands to the battalion and goes, hey, here you go. And then the battalion never provides any bottom up refinement to that one. If you've already worked it out between the BCTS-2 and the battalion to say, hey, I'm only going to give you this kind of garbage. Like, I'm just going to throw this gigantic diamond on top of you and you provide something back to me that shows it appropriate to echelon, meaning brigade looking at companies and battalions looking at platoons and below, I should be showing from the battalion back up to the brigade of, actually, you put this big diamond over three routes, but I think it's really going to be more this route and the exploitation force is going to come this way, but an enabling attack is over here and blah, blah, blah. If that's what the battalion wants to provide up to the brigade, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. But what we see a lot is that you get this gigantic diamond and then the battalion takes that exact same diamond and then just splits it up into three smaller diamonds, saying those are the platoons. And then nobody takes the next level, the next step to say, where are all of the important pieces of that attack? Where's the anti-tank weapon systems? Where's the air defense? All of the warfighting functions end up not being identified or they just put a big giant diamond 10 kilometers back and say, artillery. It would really help the fire's plan if you came up with a good spot of where you think it's going to be. And that brings me to the next point of the sit temp. You're not alone, S2. You're not alone. Reach out to people who are smarter than you, and yes, people are smarter than you. Get over it. The piece you need to think about is your NCOs have been doing this for a long time. Take advantage of one of them and ask them to take one of the warfighting functions and learn it better than anybody else. Tell them to go figure out what an engineer looks like as they're attacking a breach, the enemy engineers attacking the breach. Have them go talk to the engineers and learn something about that. And then when it comes time to developing the sit temp, you go, you're my engineer person, go for it. Get one of your soldiers to go talk to the infantry. Get her to go talk to them and say, hey, I need to understand what the infantry looks like in the defense, especially in an area that looks like this. And any infantryman can walk you through that and say, this is what I think, this is how I would array my defense if I had one anti-tank weapon system and a couple of crew served weapon systems, and this was the route, and this is what I expected to see. This is how I would establish it. And then she can come back and be your expert on, this is how the infantry is going to set up a defense. But this is also an opportunity to just go and grab the division engineer or the brigade engineer and pull them in and say, hey, walk me through this one. How's the enemy going to set up a defense? I mean, I think they're going to make us turn and go over here because this is where they want to kill us. But I don't understand how they would do that. Please tell me where the obstacles are going to be so I can give that to the battalion. The battalion can send the scouts out there to go confirm or deny the obstacle belt so we can confirm or deny that course of action. Use the experts that you have available. And then of course, the last thing we see when it comes to the sit temp is they don't take the terrain analysis, the weather analysis, the light analysis, the threat template and all that, and bring it all together. What you end up with is they just took the threat template and threw it on top of the map and said, go forth and do great things because they don't really understand the terrain or the weather. And that's a little heartbreaking for me because, like I said, this is the fun part of doing this kind of tactical intelligence stuff is that determining the threat course of action, you kind of get to be the bad guy for a little while and have some fun with it and then fight your S3 in the wargaming because this is is the part where you get to say, like, no, no, my my plan's better than yours and make the three beat you. That's the part that twos all too often just automatically assume the three's going to beat me anyway, so I don't care. No, make your three earn it really make them earn it that brings us to the event temp the event temp is as everybody knows multiple sit temps slapped on top of each other so you can identify where the differences and the similarities are so you can identify the NAIs come up with the decision points how are you going to determine what's inside those NAIs blah 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 and so you come up with that and if you didn't have time phase lines on the sit temp which I know it says do that now I didn't grow up that way see doctrine changes um If you didn't have the time phase lines on your sit temp, this is where you would then make sure all your time phase lines are on the event temp. So now you've got multiple time phase lines, lots of NAIs, a couple of decision points, and then of course, multiple different versions of what the enemy is doing. let me ask you this then, is the event temp of any value if you were to just hand it to somebody? I'm gonna go ahead and tell you no. I can look at somebody else's event temp and just immediately my head explodes. I have no idea what's going on in that event temp. It takes me... A long time to figure that out. I can look at the one I created and go, yeah, I get it. And I can brief somebody on it. You see this part is this course of action, this part is this course of action, this part's this course of action. But that doesn't mean I can hand it to somebody else. We have a tool that allows you to talk through your event temp. It's called the event matrix. The event matrix is the Word or Excel version of your event temp. I cannot tell you how many units come through here. Actually, I will tell you all of them. All of them, at one point or another, fail to create an event matrix, every one of them. I don't understand it, it's the last step. It takes all this great stuff you did, terrain analysis, weather analysis, light analysis, evaluating the threat, you've come up with multiple courses of action, you've got a great idea of what the enemy's gonna do, you put it on event temp, you've got a reasonable number of NAIs, you've got a couple of decision points, you've got HVTs, you've got a BDA chart, and nobody knows what the hell you're talking about, because you never came up with an event matrix. Now, how I sell the event matrix to people to say, this is how you create one and, or this is how you make sure that your people want one, is as to, if you want to go to sleep, have an event matrix. Because the event matrix says, I expect to see this happen at this time, at these locations, this is what it means, and this is what you do with the information. That's your event matrix. I expect to see T80, somewhere in this NAI. I think it means course of action one. If you see these things, tell current ops, call the shadow and move it over to verify, whatever it might be, and then wake me up. But if you wanna stay there the whole time because you're the only one who knows your sit temp and your event temp and and you're gonna sit in the talk the whole time, you will fail. Your event matrix means you can go to sleep. Give that a try, but more importantly, Your event matrix also leads to the collection plan. If you're creating a collection plan just off of the sit temp, or you're creating a collection plan before you even started IPB, you're wrong. Your ICSM is taking your event matrix to the next level, which is, this is how I'm going to see it. These are the methods. These are the times that I expected to see it. This is how I'm going to go see it. Well, if it's no surprise to you, I get very excited about this part of IPB because like I said, you get to have a lot of fun with it. But it's not the end-all be-all of IPB. You have to start with the basics. And so we don't have a problem with people understanding the area of operations and uh, area of interest and the general understanding of, of the terrain and the weather. Uh, where we start to see issues is when we ask people to put effects off of the data that they've collected on the weather and the light and the, and the terrain. And then when we start talking about evaluating the threat, they reach all the way back into antiquity and start talking about insurgencies and uh, villages that don't exist, they've either been raised or we've changed the names of them two or three years ago and yet you're still using those names. It tells me you didn't even try to do step three. So if you're not doing terrain and weather analysis and then you're not really thinking your way through the doctrine or the actual situation that you're fighting, how are you ever really coming up with a good enemy course of action? And then therefore, how's your collection plan really going to look? So everything hinges on this very beginning of doing IPB. I cannot stress it enough. And that really closes out the first bullet of our eight, which is a good S2, understands the four core competencies, can do the intelligence process, understands it and executes it, and then does good IPB bullets. uh, Specifically, we'll be talking about the second bullet today. First, let's talk about what I mean by intelligent systems. Obviously, I'm talking about getting your TGS up and operational. Of course, I'm talking about getting your D6 architecture going. Of course, I'm talking about your GEO workstations being operational with both licensing and software and your people actually having passwords and being able to get into their account. Yes, that's been a problem at JRTC. But what I'm also talking about is what does your intelligence system look like internally to your Battalion S2 shop, to your BCTS 2 shop? How does the BCTS2 and the MICO come together? What does that system really look like of personnel, personalities, and how does the communication piece work amongst you all? So what I'm also saying in this one is don't just practice getting your GWS up and operational or getting your GBS up and going, but I'm also talking about making sure you bring the team together so that that system is operational as well. You've got a year, year and a half, sometimes two years of, I know when my JRTC rotation is going to be, so how am I going to get after that training? Obviously MITS is a great way to go about it. MITS has provided something that we've been wanting for years, and that was some sort of an intelligence gunnery, if you will, of how do I get my team all the way through the different tables, all the way up until we're doing a live fire, which would be really JRTC or your brigade exercise before you get to JRTC. And that's what MITS provides. The part that we're seeing is units do very well after they've done their MITS and they show up at JRTC, they do very well. Uh, However, what we're seeing is only about 60% of the personnel were there for all of MITS. So don't forget the fact that we live under a sustainable readiness model uh, of how personnel move around. Everybody's coming and going constantly throughout the year, year and a half, two years before you actually get to JRTC. Many moons ago, uh, again, I will refer to the gray hair, Many moons ago we used to have a program called Green Week where new soldiers would come in and get kind of spun up on who we are as an organization, uh, what it is that we do for a living, get some of those basic 10 level skill tasks done so they could then show up in the field and be a part of whatever exercise we were in, whether it be platoon company or battalion or or squadron level activities. Think about what that would look like for you as you go through your MITS training plan of when do you accept the new people and get them up on those tables that they missed, those portions of intelligence that they are only familiar with the schoolhouse or the organization they're coming from hasn't actually done any of that training. NCOs and warrant officers are key to your training plan, but you have to have some sort of a goal. What's your instate? What do you want to look like? And don't just say, I want to win the reconnaissance fight or I want to be able to do IPB in a certain period of time. Sometimes that's part of it, but you have to take it through each of the different pieces of where, what do you really see your team doing by the time you want to be going to JRTC or what do you want to accomplish while you're at JRTC? What level do you want to be at? And then you can start looking at the training plans where they're coming. So, warrant officers are a big deal. Obviously, they're going to tell you that anyway. But What's great about warrant officers is they bring that technical expertise to your organization, especially if you've got an experienced one, a CW2, a CW3 that gets to come into the BCT and be a part of it. But more than just their single source or their fusion capability that they bring is also, they were NCOs before they were warrant officers, so they might have a pretty good understanding of what a training plan could look like and how to get an individual soldier from point A to point B uh, to get it towards your goal. But you really need to sit down with your warrant officers because you get a pretty good mixed bag of WO ones that show up in an organization. Some of them spend a lot of time as an NCO being able to train organizations and others didn't. They were very technical as an NCO and so it was just a easy transition for them to become a technical expert as a warrant officer. So you have to sit down with them and ask the question of, how do you train and do you understand where it is I want to go with my BCT or with my specialty capabilities so that they can design a plan to help out? And then, of course, your NCOs. NCOs are huge. I'm always harping on where are the NCOs, where are the NCOs. Every time I go out to an organization and it seems like nobody's actually in charge, I always ask the question, well, then who's driving this place? Where is the NCO that's supposed to be keeping everybody moving? To to have that, this is the standard and we're going to live by it. I want my NCOs to do that. So where are your NCOs? And let me ask you this one. What's their training plan really based off of? Is it based off of your design? Or did they do donning a mask for the eighth time this year? Take a look at that training plan they're doing. A lot of the younger NCOs are going to do the whole, like, I don't want officers looking at my training plan. But if you do, if you say not, I'm going to design your training, but, hey, I'd like to be here. Show me a progression of your soldiers getting us to that point then you're actually helping that NCO develop a good training plan and you're making them a stronger senior NCO later down the road. So it really is a part of professional development, not just for them, but for you, and then also for the larger intelligence team. Take advantage of downtime. Very rarely are you going to have a lot of BCT level exercises. Realistically, you're looking at maybe two, maybe three at the most, where you're going to have the entire BCT in an exercise. Well, what are you going to be busy doing during that exercise? Answering to your commander because you're the S2. So you answer to the commander. You're creating all of these MDMP products, the IPB and the being a part of war gaming and all that. How are you training your team during all of this one? You kind of need them trained up before that begins. A trick we've seen in the past is where people have training already sitting on the shelf waiting for them. For example, given today and tomorrow's weather and light data do some weather and light effects for dismounted operations moving through that wood line. Pick whatever terrain you want. Make it a desert. Make it a jungle. Make it the swamps of Louisiana. It doesn't matter. It's all good training. And then switch it up. No, now I'd like to understand how the engineers are going to perform. Now I'd like to talk about how a striker's going to do it. Now I'd like to talk about a T-80. You can mix it up and you can create different weather effects and light effects. And it doesn't take but 5-10 minutes for a soldier to... Dig up the information and do the effects. If you go to a website like uh, usgs.gov, you can find topographical maps. Granted, they're, I think, 62,000, one over 62,000 versus one over 50,000, but they are topographical and they do follow the exact same things that we have in military maps. So take a look at those and then you can assign uh, different terrain analysis uh, problem sets for areas that they've never even seen before grab a topographical map from your hometown and ask them to take a look at the woods around that area and have them, because you understand them better than anybody else, and have them do some sort of uh, route analysis. Have them go through and say, this is what it would look like if you were driving a striker through this area or a BMP or a T-80, or this is how the water's gonna flow in the next rainfall because you're familiar with what those creek beds look like. You can kind of test them on their knowledge of an area. Use your imagination in all of this. Have somebody describe to you what an IV line is and then have them draw one out. What would it look like on a contour map? What would it look like on a 1 over 50,000? What would it look like on a 1 over 25,000? Give me an IV line. And then you can take that even further and say, well, given these types of enemy, what would they... How would they defend that IV line? Would they use a reverse slope mobile defense or would they try to set up on the high ground with their defensive positions and overlook the low ground? Have them think their way through the doctrine and tactics using that topographical map that they themselves drew based on an IV line that you made them look up and learn. You can get technical with it. Given X and Y and Z capabilities from EAB plus our organic collection capabilities, uh, how would you collect against a name a high value target and you can go through any number of high value targets to get them figured figure out how would you create a collection plan. And then now you've got basically collection playbooks of how you would just sort of overlay them when you get out to the operation. Right. Again, This is all about imagination when it comes to home station training. A lot of it doesn't require any money whatsoever. And that's the part that people seem to miss a lot as they say, Well, I only had two training events before we deployed. The battalions don't want to listen to any training that the BCT is doing. They want to do their own. The battalions are upset because, well, we had gunnery and we had all these other things. But there's, there's things that you as an S2 can be training on during gunnery, during platoon exercises, during whatever else. How about you incorporate IPB into platoon sticks? What kind of IPB are you doing for that area where the platoon is going? What about when the scout platoon is doing their training? Can't the S2 be sitting there on the other end of the net receiving some of their calls? Why not? And how about every time the shadow flies, how come somebody doesn't establish the OSRVT? And that brings us to more of the technical side of the conversation. Not only can you establish your OSRVTs every time the Shadow is doing some sort of a training flight. Now, obviously, that requires getting the COMSEC and getting the OSRVT up and coordinating with the Shadow Platoon. But shouldn't the BCTS2 already know when the shadow's training anyway so they can be a part of it? Oh, of course, because then you can have the collection manager go out and work with the Shadow Platoon leader, find out when it's happening, have a collection plan that's designed around this is when it's happening. Go ahead and link in your BAO in that conversation of, hey, The shadow's flying. Will you please look into the area and make sure they can fly? Of course they're going to come back and say, yes, they can, because that's already been coordinated through the shadow platoon and their training plan. However, it's good practice to make sure the collection manager, the shadow platoon leader, and the BAO are all communicating every time the shadow flies. That's going to be a big issue for you when you come to JRTC. But more importantly, it also gets a shadow platoon leader in a, a relationship with the collection manager where they can come back and say, no, I can't collect over there because I'm supposed to be training over here. So bring it online, buddy. Let's get this collection plan that actually matches where we're going to be flying. You can also establish your TGS in the motor pool, get your GBS up and running, get your Trojan network up and going, get that geonet workstation up and actually try to pull down some imagery from someplace overseas and try to exploit it. Like I said, you're gonna be checking licenses, You're gonna be checking software updates and you're going to be making sure that everybody has access to their systems. Again, I can't stress this enough. Units show up here all the time with a KG250 that is dead. It takes about anywhere from 30 to 60 days of no use for a KG250 to die and they cost over $10,000 to replace. So why aren't you pulling that out of the safe and putting it into use? How about your workstations? How many units have to show up at JRTC and not have access to their workstations until training day five. Don't wait for BCT level training. This is an opportunity. So again, if we go back and look at what today's point was, you'll see it here on the screen, is it's all about training at home station before you get here. Train your equipment, train your people, train your teams. Point was, you'll see it here on the screen, is it's all about training at home station before you get here. Train your equipment, Train your people, train your teams, put it all together and make something. Use your imagination, use your initiative, train your people. And of course, I'm a big fan of the MITS program, so pay attention to that one. Just incorporate your new people into the plan so that they catch up and stay with you as you go through. And what you'll end up with is something closer to 85 or even 90% of your personnel that were part of the entire MITS training plan all the way through before you get to JRTC. And thanks for stopping in. I'll see you next time. Be safe. Be smart.
0: Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by 1st Lieutenant Anthony Joe. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the Crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash dot E-E forward slash j-r-t-c. We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at https colon forward slash, forward slash, www.army.mil forward slash, C-A-L-L. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts. And be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future. The Crucible, the JRTC experience, is a product of the Joint Readiness Training Center.